You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Financial independence was a little bit of an existential crisis for me. Money solves some of my problems, but only really the money problems. It didn't provide meaning or purpose in my life. It didn't dictate what I should do today, tomorrow, or even next year. With time, writing, and thoughtfulness, I started to build a life that was more congruent with who I wanted to be and how I wanted to identify myself. There was a piece, however, missing, the spiritual. How do we integrate the material with the ephemeral, the practical with the unmeasurable, the human with the divine? And what the heck does any of this have to do with money or illicit substances for that matter? My guest today might just have the answers. Douglas Soy is a spiritual director. He focuses on people finding their spirituality outside of traditional religion or people who even don't think of themselves as spiritual, but sense there is something deeper inside of them wanting to be revealed. He is also part of the financial independence community. Douglas, welcome to Earn and Invest. I want to start with financial independence. What problems did financial independence solve for you? And more importantly, what problems didn't it solve for you? Yeah, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I think about the serenity prayer, which is like, you know, God grant us the serenity of mind to accept which that which cannot be changed, the courage to change that which can be changed and the wisdom to know the difference. And uh, I I think about that with money, like, you know, if we only knew that what we can buy with money, what we can't buy with money and have the wisdom to know the difference between the two, we'd solve a lot of things within ourselves. Yeah, no, I just, uh, Morgan Housel, who's one of the guys that I really read, he he writes the Collabor- Collaborative Fund blog, which is the best financial blog I know. He talks about outside a certain level of money, how much you spend is just purely a function of your ego. And so, like, in, that's the spiritual question for me. Like, you know, how much of our personal finance is a function of our egos? It's an interesting question. When you first found out you were financially independent, I guess, first of all, how did you find out you're financially independent? Like, how did you come across this? And did you feel an immediate sense of happiness when you came to this conclusion? (laughs) Oh, goodness. Um, So this was back in 2015. I went to a workshop with Mr. Money Mustache, Pete, and uh, J.D. Roth of Get Rich Slowly. And they were it was a three hour workshop on fire. And basically, you know, they were talking about all the benefits of fire. And when we started doing the math, I realized, Oh, I've already done this. <laughs> um, and it was just sort of this miraculous thing. I guess the easiest way to put it is I, I grew up in a Chinese immigrant household. You know, we fled the communists, we lost everything. And so that sort of money vigilance script came with me. And so when I graduated from college, the first job I had out of college was at the Justice Department in Washington, D.C., and uh, I made $25,000 a year, and I spent fifteen. but I felt rich because in college, I, I was pretty poor. I, I lived on $5,000 a year, so literally that first year at age 22, I was living on three times the amount of income that I was the year before, so I just decided, I had read Your Money, Your Life, I just decided, well, if this is enough, and enough is a big word for me, spiritually, financially, environmentally, philosophically, I was just drawing the line right here. And so for the next 20 years, I lived on about $25,000 a year and saved and invested the rest. 
And so in 2014, I got laid off and I just knew I was going to take some time. I went to that fire workshop and basically, you know, I had, I, I knew it, but I didn't really think about it. But my basic principle was for every year I worked, I was going to bank a year of savings because I figured I'm going to work 35 years and I will live 35 years after that. I knew I was not accounting for compound interest, but it was only when Mr. Money Mustache and JD was like, you could do something different with your money, your savings that you've created. You could have freedom. You have, you could have actually have liberation. Did it awake me to like, oh, I do not have to keep on working. Did you find that this realization brought an immediate sense of joy? Were you like, oh, now I can be and do what I want. This is what I've been waiting for. I think, you know, I, one of my favorite writers talks about, you can't think your way into a new way of living. It's easier to live a new way into thinking. Uh-huh. And so when I first learned that I was financially free, there was a still an anxiety. Like, you know, it's, it's all fine on paper. Like the math is there. To actually change your habits and really fully accept that you're safe, you know, that's an internal battle. And, you know, I think we're going to talk about enoughness today. And you know, that external sense of I have enough has to be driven from an internal sense of feeling like you have nothing, you are enough. Let's talk about enoughness because you brought it up. And what you just said is really interesting. This feeling like you are enough. I would say I had a few different enough crises in my life. One of them was realizing I didn't want to work anymore and I had to figure out enough money then I realized I had enough money, but I didn't have enough purpose. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life or who I wanted to be. I got much better at figuring that out, but I found that there was a final crisis and you had mentioned spirituality before. There was a piece of it that was a spiritual crisis. Not only now is it like, okay, I know kind of what I feel like my purpose and identity are, but what does it all mean? Did you hit this point of spiritual crisis after realizing that you had enough money? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, financial freedom or fire, there's just an opportunity. Like the way I think about it, Jordan, is like fire is, is not a goal. It's, it's a gateway, right? Like if, if the whole point of fire was that they could, you stop working, I feel like that's a very li- lim- limited and impoverished way to think about what fire really is. Fire is an opportunity to become who you really um are supposed to become, you know, and this is like going back into Jungian psychology, right? We live our fir- the first half of our lives learning to comply with society, right? And the earning money and like achievement and like status and like making enough, showing that you have enough and being proud of the, the house you live in or the, the beautiful partner you have or the like the great kids you have or the car you drive, all of that is first half of life stuff. And then you get to the second half of your life and you realize, and you know, Joseph Campbell, he said, what, what did he say? He said, a midlife crisis is when you have climbed to the top of the ladder and you realize you're on the wrong wall. Hmm. And, you know, it seems like you, you sort of experienced that as a doctor, right? Like you did everything. You were su- too, super successful and you realize this is what not, this was not what I was meant to do. I love this term that fire is a gateway. And specifically, I want to talk about how it may or may not have been a gateway for you. Talk to me about using mind-altering substances. So I know your fire story. I know how you ended up where you are today. Is it connected at all to using psychoactive substances? Give us a little more detail of how you went down that pathway. Yeah, I mean, I think it's connected to what you're talking about, the sense of enoughness. And, you know, before we even talk about psychedelics, you know, I'm just saying I'm not a doctor, not a therapist. I don't condone illegal uses of drugs, not encouraging anyone. I'm talking about my own experiences. So I just want to put that caveat out there. But like, you know, about a year or two later, after fire, actually, I had started this new business, you know, functionally, like when you're financially independent, you get to create the thing that you've always wanted to create. And I created a school for everyday life. It was called Portland Underground Grad School, PUGS. I ran it for four years and it was amazing. And I sold it afterwards, but I was running this business, which was what I was really truly about, lifelong learning. It was essentially grad school for everyday life. Like the sense that like most of us 
our closest friendships and our, our sense of most aliveness was, you know, we were in school. I, I believe that humans are lifelong learners and we don't stop learning when we finish college or grad school, right? So I was creating a grad school for everyday life. And yet I was still, there's still some empty hole inside of me. And, you know, I think the first time I did psychedelics, it was, you know, for any, for anyone who's never taken it, the only way <laughs> it's funny, like the only way I can describe it, you just can't describe it actually. Like how do you describe sex to a person who's never had sex? I think that's the easiest way. There are no words for it, right? It's, it's an experience that has to be experienced to be understood. But the way, the only words I can use is when you have psychedelics, it sort of jars you. You realize you have had a perspective about your entire life, a filter, right? I think biologically, it's called the default mode network, which is right in the center of your prefrontal cortex, maybe. You know, it's the sense of self that you think that everything that you see and understand is true. And the psychedelics it sort of rattles it. It just like shakes your brain up a little <laughs> yeah. bit. You realize, oh, everything I thought was, you know, what, what is that line from the Coen Brothers movie? You know, that's just your opinion, man. I realized everything I thought was true was just an opinion or just a perspective. Then you're like, oh, I have some distance from me and my ego. And that's the magical thing about psychedelics. I, I want to get more granular here because what I'm hearing is, you reached fire, you started working on pugs, which was really part of your purpose in life. And yet you still felt like there was this hole, the space that needed to be full filled. In fact, in my intro, I talk about the kind of, it didn't really tell me anything about spirituality, even though I was working on all these things. Right. How does that specifically lead to, I'm going to try this psychoactive substance? Was it someone you knew? Did you get on the computer and do your own search? Like how did it enter your mind that there's something I'm missing and this may fill some of that hole. Yeah. I had always been afraid of psychedelics before, you know, I grew up in the eighties, the Nancy Reagan, just say no to drugs, you know, a fried egg being scrambled. <laughs> yes. <laughs> always afraid of like, I'm going to put holes in my brain. And I had three friends that I trusted and I remain grateful to, for them to this day. Almost every time I see them, I tell them how grateful I am. They just, they took me to, the coast in Oregon and said, you know, we're going to take care of you and make sure you're okay as you do this. And there was a fair amount of trepidation as I did it. And, you know, as one of my friends described it, like she watched my brain turn inside out. And (laughs) it's, it's, again, I, the analogy I have is sex. Like once you have the gnosis, the knowledge of, of sex, you're a different person than you were before. And it's magical. And it's, I, I think it's part of being human. So we're going to talk about one of these penultimate experiences for you where it profoundly affected your life. But I need to understand better. Was this something you did multiple times or was this something where you had one major episode where you did it? Or, you know, tell me a little bit more about psychedelics because a lot of us don't understand. We don't. Is it somewhere? You know, a lot of people talk about going out of the country and doing it once kind of in a monitored setting with people who guide you through versus other people who do these things on a regular basis. What, how was it for you? Yeah. And I'll repeat my caveat, which is, this is my experience. I felt comfortable doing the way things I did. And I, I know that other people would not be safe in the way that I did it. I have friends who, um, how do I put this? The veils between them and the other side are not very strong. Like I have people, I have friends who have had psychic breaks and they're super cautious and will avoid psychedelics. And I think that's the right call, but there's for some people like me, I don't know you Jordan, but the grip that my ego has on me is pretty tight. And I think psychedelics is, is appropriate and wonderful way to like be a little looser. Like it's, it's, you know, Ram Dass calls it in a different context, you know, loosening a shoe that's just a little too tight. Hmm. Um, so what I did, and again, I do not recommend it for most people, is I, I, I did it for myself. I just did it in my room for myself, but I viewed it as a sacrament, like something sacred. I, this was not recreational for me. This was a way for me to explore myself, my spirituality, and my relationship 
the trauma and with the past, you just go to places that you can't go in, you know, the normal default world. Yeah. And I did it regularly. And, you know, one of the things I'm now interested in as a spiritual director is, you know, Houston Smith, who is a, a pretty famous religious scholar, he once wrote that spiritual experiences do not make a spiritual life, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can use psychedelics as, as sort of like a mental tourism or psychic tourism. But if you go there and you don't think about, like, how do you want to live differently afterwards? I think it's sort of wasted. I mean, I actually, I think it's a great analogy for fire, right? Like, again, psychedelics, I think, also are a gateway. They are not the path. Like what you do when you come back and how you want to integrate this, you know, ineffable knowledge is the most important thing to me. I want to talk about one specific experience that you had using psychedelics and you've written and described it for me. But before we get there, if you're willing to talk about it a little bit, it sounds like you specifically came to this with certain goals in mind. In fact, you even mentioned trauma specifically. If you're willing, tell us a little bit about some of those traumas which you felt like this could help you with. I mean, I, you know, I think there are family wounds. There are, you know, I'm, you know, I'm Asian American. There are racial wounds. I think there are ancestral wounds. Like, you know, my family lost everything when they fled the communists. Right. And that's going back to money, like the money scripts of like, am I safe? This existential sense that like, I am not safe in the world that can come from ancestors, I think is a possibility on a larger sense. And, you know, this gets a little more esoteric. There's a beautiful writer, Mark Epstein, who wrote something called The Trauma of Everyday Life. And he is both a therapist and a Buddhist scholar. And one of the things he talks about is the very fact of being born and being separated into individualism is the most elemental trauma that we all experience. And how, and what he does is he connects the Buddhist Pali canon. He actually knows how to read Pali, which is the ancient language. The first Buddhist texts were written in. He is a psychotherapist. So he talks about DJ Windicott and good enough parenting. And he talks about meditation and all of them are ways of taking frightening experiences and placing them into a field of loving acceptance. And I think psychedelics, but there are a ton of different ways that you can find that loving acceptance of traumatic experiences. And so, you know, I I think that's another really good thing to make clear, like psychedelics are not the only path, right? Like, in fact, I think that's the most interesting thing about my spiritual exploration. You realize, you know, before psychedelics were discovered, at least by, you know, modern Western culture, there have been many paths to God, as they say, right? Like, you know, there, there's chanting, there's the Sufi dancing, there's like deep meditation. Like, you know, when you read the mystics from around the world, they're describing the same thing as each other and the experience of psychedelics. And that's the magic, right? Like you realize psychedelics are just this one window. I mean, on some ways, it's like an elevator ride. It's a free ticket, mm-hmm. but you know, there are stairs, there's any number of stairs at the mountain. In some ways, I definitely feel like we're talking about the evolution of enoughness. So you first start with money and you start thinking, how am I going to get enough money? And then you discover fire and you find a way to get enough money. And then you're free to really pursue this idea of purpose. So you do things like for me, it was doing a podcast for you. It was pugs. And you're like, how do I fulfill my sense of purpose? How do I have enough purpose? And then, so then you pursue that and yet at the end of that i think for a lot of a lot of us there's still this question am i enough and i i believe from talking to you and and from this conversation that that was part of what brought you to the psychedelics i want to talk about a specific episode you had and i'm going to quote you here you say that this was one of the most important experiences of my life but how do you describe the ineffable and and you said, you know, it's like trying to tell someone what having sex feels like, right? It's really hard to describe. It's just something you either do or you don't do. But I'm going to ask you to humor me here. We're talking about a life-changing experience you had with psychedelics. Can you put any of it into words, what it felt like? Yeah, maybe the easiest way to say this, Jordan, is, you know, you can't 
you can't, the most important things in life cannot be put into words like sex, but there is erotica, right? Like erotica gets, gets you somewhere close to it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, if you read the mystical texts and like, you know, I, they are by analogy describing this experience I had under the five MEO DMT, which is Michael Pollan described it. It was the most pow- powerful psychedelic that he, that he, that he knew of. And when he tried it, he did not have a good experience. He described it as being strapped on the outside of a rocket as it launched. Hmm. He did, he had an unpleasant experience, but my experience was, was in this ineffable sense of beauty and completeness and also t- terror. I was about to say it wasn't enjoyable in the beginning from the way you've described it. No, it, you know, you know, I think the Latin term is mysterium tremendum. It was a terrifying, mystical, and complete experience. But um, you know, if if, if we're going to use the erotica na- analogy, the Buddhists call that experience of what I, I, I believe is ego death. The illuminated void is what it is, um, which is a, a perfect way to describe it. I think they also call it luminosity, right? Like, and here's the interesting thing. You know, I think I've talked to a number of people who have experienced ego death, and they they have different ways to explain the ineffable. But my spiritual background is Quaker, and in, in Quakerism, there's this idea of the inner light that we have that of God within us, this internal light that is also universal to everyone and everything. And so when I experienced a totality of light and nothingness, including a nothing, nothingness of myself, I believe that I had an experience of what the Christians or the Jews call heaven or the Hindus call moksha or the Buddhists call nirvana. But my experience of light was like, oh, like when the Quakers talk about inner light, it's not a metaphor. They're the original guy, George Fox, was literally somehow had that experience. And I just feel super privileged to, to have that experience, right? And then you come back and then you wonder, now what? <laughs> right? We are talking to Douglas Soy. He is a spiritual director and part of the financial independence movement. And we are discussing enough... And interestingly, the use of psychedelics, we are going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Yo, everybody, just a quick note. My book, Taking Stock, A Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life is now live on Amazon as of August 2nd. The book is out there. I am so proud of this launch, but I still would like to make sure all of you get a copy You've been listening to the Earn and Invest podcast hopefully for years now, and you're used to hearing my stories, but I love the fact that I was able to take all of my stories, put them together succinctly in this book, and discuss how my experiences with the dying helped me understand money and life. I'm really excited the book has launched. Please go ahead and go to earnandinvest.com slash book or earnandinvest.com slash taking stock to get your copy. And I'd love to hear your feedback. Tell me what you think of the book. Leave a review on Amazon. And let's continue the conversation we've started here. Now back to the show.
let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Douglas Soy, and we are talking about a sense of enoughness, financial independence, and the use of psychedelics. Douglas, you're describing this time when you used 5-MeO-DMT and this sense of light or ego death is the words you use. You were with someone at the time who was guiding you through this or at least supporting you. And at multiple times they asked you, you know, are you okay during this, this experience? And you came out with two statements. He asked yeah. you twice. Yeah. And each time you had two specific statements. Tell me what those statements were and, and what do you think they meant? Yeah. So when I came out of the experience, my facilitator touched me and he asked me, how are you feeling? And I looked up at him and, you know, I think there is, there are certain cliches that we have in the world that functionally are banal, right? They don't, they're meaningless until you really understand what they mean. And after that experience, I looked up at him and when he asked me how I was feeling, I looked up at him and I said, everything's going to be okay. Hmm. And he just nodded and he said, yes. Right. And then I just sat in silence for five, 10 more minutes. Time becomes this meaningless concept at that point. And then he touches me again and he says, how are you doing? And I looked at him and I said, I don't have to try anymore. Hmm. And the way I interpret those two statements, again, totally banal. They don't make any sense, but those, those two statements have been, become totems for me. Like I, I, I feel them in a deep way that is not always constant, but they're very reassuring. And I feel them ever since I've, I've felt them ever since. And I think what they mean to me is I, I believe that we spend our entire lives trying you know, we're trying to get good grades or we're trying to get like the better job or we're trying to like get the best looking spouse or, you know, live in the right neighborhood, wear the right clothes, you know, get the right Tesla. I, don't, I have no idea what people <laughs> want, but, you know, it's very dependent on, you know, their status identity and who they're trying to impress. But functionally, all of what we're trying to do is we're trying to get love. We're trying to get love from others. And I think, you know, when you have an experience like this, you realize, you know, all the sense of belovedness that I've been trying to get from others, the belovedness comes from inside. And of course, that's the turn. That's always the turn, right? Like when you realize everything I've been searching from the outside is actually on the inside. That's when you move into the second half of your life. I'm going to be more prescriptive here because, you know, I want to ask this question, although you kind of already answered it, but I want to go a step further. Everything is going to be okay, and I don't have to try anymore. Relate that back to this idea of enoughness. Yeah, I mean, Carl Jung, you know, he's, he's the first person that talked about the first half of his life. He says the first half of life, as we try and conform, we learn, and I, and I need to emphasize, I believe it's developmentally appropriate. Like, you have kids, right? Your kids have to learn some things are not okay to do. Don't touch the stove. Don't run across the street get good grades. Like there are certain things that every human needs to do to comport to society. Again, necessary. And it causes soul damage, right? And, you know, it's super easy to see if you are somewhat different than what the the normative, the normative value is, right? Like, you know, if you're gay or you're a person of color or like, you know, you're, <laughs> you're differently able or your mind works differently. You're, you're subtly told you're not okay for the, for vast portions of your life. And if you do this, you'll be okay. But as again, as we were talking about, if there's an external, you'll be okay. And you're constantly chasing it. You will never reach it. Right? Like one of the things I talk about, do you know the Swedish word Lagom? Tell me about it. This, this is what I, one of the things I teach about in my financial freedom class. Lagam is the Swedish word for enough. And the idea behind Lagam is there's a deep satisfaction in getting just the right amount. So instead of eating too much, Lagam amount of food is better than stuffing yourself. Instead of like having a gigantic 20 square, 2,500 square foot house, a Lagam house is actually more satisfying. And so this deep sense of enoughness, I think, is what we're talking about, right? And you can because there's an ideology of more in capitalism, right? Like I will be happy. 
there's a sense of I will be happy when I get this. But this ideology of getting more and more means that whenever you get more, you still need more. And that's the internal game, right? But when you have an ideology of enoughness of Lagam, you already have it. You're already there. It sounds like there's a difference between the intellectual idea of Lagam and enough, which all of us can intellectually come to and actually feeling it in, I hate to use these words, in your soul, which it sounds like that's how you felt after this experience, that as opposed to intellectually understanding this principle, you actually felt it on the inside. You know, I I mean, you're touching on really astute stuff, Jordan. I think the way I would put it is, you know, the first half of my life when I was trying to reach fire, my personal finances were built around my ego needs for safety, right? Like the sense of like, if I spent money, I was losing security, right? And so that's how I reached fire, a sense of not enoughness, right? Like, and then once you hit some sort of spiritual or emotional sense of enoughness, you realize my enoughness means I don't have to spend more. There's actually a sense of joy in what you currently have. I want to quote again from your writing. You ask a question about this experience afterwards. You say, what does one do with their life after they experience heaven and come back? It's an interesting characterization of what you went through The problem with beautiful, wondrous experiences is once they're over, they're over. And it's really hard to recapture, I think, especially when you're using a psychoactive substance like this and you get to this place of ego death and enoughness and saying, I don't have to try anymore, right? Like, think about how powerful of a statement that is. But ultimately, you leave this state and you come back to the state that we live most of our lives in. Do you now looking back at this experience, think of it as a heavenly experience. And and how do you think you then continued to walk the rest of your life? What changed? How did that change who you were, what you strove towards? One of my favorite books on this is Jack Kornfield. Kornfeld, he wrote a book, um, After the Ecstasy of the Laundry. <laughs> okay. Right? The title says it all, right? Like you can have these ecstatic spiritual experiences, but you can't stay there, right? Like you have to come back down from the mountain and come back to the village. And the question is, how do you want to live your life after that, right? And what's super interesting to me is I went through a period of psychedelic experimentation and I'm not that interested in it anymore. Like, you know, after a while, it gradually just lost its effect. And Ram Das has this beautiful saying, he says, and he's talking about Timothy Leary, the first, you know, really ag- aggressive, Psychonaut, and he says, you know, after after, after you get the message, you got to hang up the phone, right? Like, and Timothy Leary didn't hang up the phone; he just kept on going. But like, once you understand the message you get from there, the whole point is to bring it into your life now. And I would suggest that's the same thing with the fire movement, right? Like, once you get fire, like you get to become who you're supposed to become. It's a waste to think, oh, now, like, you know, Mister Monkey Mustache again, like in that first talk, because if the whole point of fire is to like sit on your couch and eat bonbons and like wear a catheter. So you don't have to like go to the bathroom. You've wasted something you've wasted, you know, as Vicki Robbins says, you've wasted the rest of your life. And so for me, the question of like experiencing heaven there and coming back, there's the sense you realize that you're not only a material human being, but also a spiritual human being, but you're both right. Like you cannot exist just spiritual. You still exist materially. And one of the things I talk about in my financial freedom class is this world still exists. You still have like money still matters. And the paradox or the key idea is that you are both human and divine, right? You're both mystical and mundane and the mm-hmm. ability to live both ways. My spiritual director, one of the things he talks about is, you know, the horizontal, which is sort of the physical material world that we live in and the vertical, which is the spiritual world that we live in. When you combine the two, it forms basically the Christian cross and the intersection between the two is called, in mystical terms, the axis Monday, where everything happens. This is where heaven and earth meet. You know, I'm, one of my favorite jokes is when, when I write my newsletter, I talk about Belinda Carlisle, you know, that song, Heaven is a Place on Earth, right? And that's the job. Like, once you realize that over there, you realize 
everything I have in my life, including my money, can try and create heaven on earth. So tell me what that looks like in your life. I mean, you've gone through this just undescribable experience. It's changed you in the way you look at the world. How in everyday life does heaven enter the earth for you? Like, what does your life look like post this experience? And how do you integrate all that you experienced? Yeah, so the first half of my life, I had a mission statement, which was I want to help people learn and feel closer to the communities. Yeah, I want to help people learn and feel closer to the communities, which was, you know, I was a Quaker school teacher. I did sustainability work for the government, tried to teach people about climate change. You know, I ran an underground grad school. After that experience, I've been playing around with a mission statement for my life. And I don't know if it will stick, but the, the one I'm playing with is I want to help people participate in grace. You know, and what does part- helping people participate in grace means? Again, there's, there's the sense of there are certain things that you need in this world to survive. Housing, food, you know, sense of safety. And you can, you can buy those things. But the things that you really want, Francis Weller, who is a therapist, he talks about these primary satisfactions that we've lost in modern day society, a sense of connection, a sense of like waking up and like feeling like people know you and that you're affirmed and uh, that you're seen and you're acknowledged for your gifts. Those primary satisfactions we've lost in everyday life, like just the sitting around the campfire at night, feeling like you belong to everyone else around you. I that's what I'm actually really interested in promoting. Like, and, you know, Francis Weller talks about the secondary addictions we have in capitalism, right? Like sense of materialism or like achievement. Like, you know, I will finally be accepted if I like get that promotion or I make that much amount of money. Francis Weller says those are addictive things. And the thing with addictive things, you can never get enough of them. And that's, you know, that's the sense of enoughness. Like when you have a primary satisfaction, you feel satisfied. When you get a secondary satisfaction, you're temporarily satisfied. Yeah, you know, I love the the concept of treadmills. And we love to talk about the hedonic treadmill, which is, I think, just one of many, many treadmills, right? Mm-hmm. I've been a victim of the achievement treadmill most of my life. A lot of us have a money treadmill. I call it overdrive and, and when I talk about it, but it's this idea that we need to make more and more money. And we feel like that will fulfill our needs. And I certainly know that it is exceedingly difficult to find a way off those treadmills without some form of spirituality in whichever way you practice it. It's, it's something that's hard to logic your way out of. There needs to be something more. Talk about some of the projects that have sprung from this experience. So there are a number of projects you're involved with right now that feel directly related to this experience. Talk about a few of them. Yeah, like I feel like everything I do is related to this idea of participating in grace. Like, again, I teach, I have a website, schooloffinancialfreedom.com. And, you know, I teach people personal finance, but from this sense of enoughness, you know, right? Like, what is enough and what is your, what are you supposed to be doing with your life, right? Like, what is your life really about? And, you know, Vicki Robin, godmother of all of this, says like, you know, most of people's financial problems are disguised for a lack of purpose in their life. Um, and if you know what you're really about, the money becomes super easy because then, then everything is ordinated towards what you're really about. And that's what I teach at the School of Financial Freedom. I, I think you'll be interested in this as a personal finance junkie, Jordan. I have created this thing called the Jubilee Fund. And what I did is I collected $100,000 from friends. And what we did is we found other people who had $100,000 of debt. And we just wrote checks and eliminated all their credit card debt. And in return, those people, they agreed to a five-year 0% interest repayment with all that money going to reparations, to like the Black reparations funds or Native American reparations funds. So functionally, what happened was we donated $100,000. But before that money got to reparations funds, we diverted it and eliminated people's credit cards debts. And because of that, you know, the way I think about it is we earned a 20% return on investment by eliminating credit card debt, right? Those people, the people that we call donors, 
they were never going to get, or it was going to be very difficult for them to get out of their credit card debt. But now instead of paying credit card debt, they are now donating to causes they believe in. So, you know, the, the, super phrase, the super short phrase behind it is we've turned debt into donations or donors into debtors. Oh, sorry, debtors into donors. And the sort of the identity change when like, oh, I'm paying credit card debt towards I'm giving towards something I believe in, it's transformative. Um, and again, it's all participating in grace. The people who gave them the original $100,000 participating in grace, the people who are now donating to reparations participating in grace and the, hopefully the, the reparations organizations we're giving to feel like they're participating in grace too. And here's an interesting thing, like the, the Lakota, the native Americans, they don't have the personal possessive pronoun. There's no mine or my ours. Right. And so Angel Kieta Williams, who's a Buddhist teacher, black Buddhist teacher. She talks about this idea just for a month, try not using the personal possessive pronoun is not my money, right? It's not my house. It's not my girlfriend. It's the money, right? And when the when it becomes the money, the money flows to the places where it's most needed. I want to point out here that we've gone from talking about the ephemeral, talking about the spiritual, to right towards the tactical. And that's why I think it's important to have this conversation because we're not just talking about philosophy, but we're talking about something that drove you to action, which I think is very exciting. Action that that helps your fellow man. I'm wondering if you think you would have gotten here without the five MEO DMT. And I think especially for people listening, we're not giving them advice. We're not telling them they should have this experience, but let's talk about you specifically. Tell me where you'd be today if you hadn't had that experience. That's a super tough question. It's, you know, Rumi has this quote, there is a treasury of joy within you. Why do you keep begging door to door? And, you know, consumerism, status, you know, achievement, you know, the achievement hedonic treadmill that you're talking about, that's all begging door to door, right? Um, And I think even if I hit fire um, and I did not have a sense of enoughness, I would still be begging, be begging for people's approval, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of us connect to that idea because a lot of us, as we've gone through our own financial process, have realized again what we started with, that fire, getting your finances in order, solves particularly money problems, but doesn't change specifically who we are, what we aspire to, or even some of the problems that we have. If someone's listening to this right now and saying, I'd really like to know more about this, like this is something that now interests me, you you spiked my interest in psychedelics, is there a place either online or a podcast or, or, or a good place to start if this is something that interests you? You know, I think the most basic place to start is Michael Pollan wrote that beautiful book, How to Change Your Mind. And so like, if you're completely new to psychedelics, I think that's a beautiful place to go. I think, you know, for people who have done psychedelics, the book is not that interesting <laughs> because you know he, he's describing it from someone who's nervous and the skeptic moving towards this place of realization. But if like, if you know nothing about it or you're afraid, like I was afraid, like you're going to fry your brain or put holes, you know, in your cerebral cortex, like <laughs> that's probably a good place to start. Well, Douglas, I wanted to thank you for coming on and being really open and talking about psychedelics. I have struggled with enoughness for a long time, not just when it comes to money or purpose, but deeper down and philosophically what that means and how we find the ultimate sense of enoughness. And listening to you describe your experiences have been eye-opening. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life. And specifically, if people want to learn more, how can they contact you? So start with what's up next in your life. Yeah, I'm still trying to create projects that are about helping people participate in grace. I have a website called The Appreciation Effect, theappreciationeffect.com, where people can create essentially appreciation campaigns for their loved ones. Like, you know, your wife, you could, you know, send us 
her name and her email. And we, what we do is we spit out a link and then you share the link with all her friends and family. And what they do is they write her notes of appreciation about who she really is and what they're grateful about for her. And we'll send her one per day as long as they last. And the amazing thing is, you know, like usually, you know, you get happy birthday, you know, and it's all in one day and they're pretty shallow. But when you get one note per day from the people you love and each day it's a surprise. You don't know who you're getting it from. And it goes on. You know, we have campaigns that last seven days. We have campaigns that have lasted 100 days. When you are in that liminal space of feeling seen and acknowledged for who you are, for the gifts that you have, oftentimes the the interesting thing, and I've experienced it because I've had a campaign, the gifts that you have that are special in the world are things that you think are normal, but everyone Mm -hmm. finds very, very important and valuable to them, you know, and being seen and acknowledged for who you are outside of what you do. Again, it is, it's a sense of grace and I want to help people feel that sense of grace from in their community. So I'm also a spiritual director. So you can find me at douglassoy.com if you want to talk about any of these things. But here's the interesting thing, you know, and I would want to end on this, Jordan, right? Like, I'm not that interested in psychedelics in and of themselves. I'm interested in psychedelics or any other method that gets you to change to feeling enoughness. And there are so many ways. Like, you know, I have so many friends who are women that when they became mothers, they felt felt a sense of love and enoughness they had never felt before. Of course, that becomes complicated as your child gradually pulls away from you as they're, they're supposed to do. But there are many paths to God. And psychedelics is, was mine. And I'm not necessarily telling saying that it's a better one than the rest. But I encourage people, like, it's not about the experience. It's about the change that you want in your life that you're willing to commit to. Douglas Soy on Enoughness. Douglas, thank you for being on the show. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. I am Doc G, and that's a wrap. I leave the audio rolling just a few minutes for an after show. First and foremost, is there anything we didn't cover? Anything you're like, wow, I wish we talked about this. Um, I think there are a couple things. Let me look at my notes. Um, ah, you came with notes. <laughs> I had to prep for this uh, <laughs> because I was not sure what I was going to say. Um, That's the best kind of conversations. Yeah, well... Um, I think, you know, the one thing I would say is both money and psychedelics, they're double-edged swords, right? Like, like money can, you can do amazing things with money or you can, you can destroy yourself and everyone around you with it. Um, same thing with psychedelics. And so, you know, that's the caution. Like, I think it's still the, the intention you have and what you're going to do after that is really interesting to me. Um, and that's only, why I'm yeah. really interested in the spiritual integration of psychedelics. And the psychedelics yeah. are not that interesting. It's the integration afterwards that's interesting to me. Yeah. They're all tools, right? Like you said, gateways, tools, paths, but you still have to walk those paths and then decide where you want to end up. Yeah. And then I think the other thing I would mention is, you know, I just, I, I graduated from the Franciscan spiritual director program and, you know, um, in my interview, to get into the program a few years ago, Sister Mary Jo told me um, there are two elements of Franciscan theology. There's just two things to know. One, God loves you extravagantly, period, right? And I grew up in a Christian household where you're told God loves you, but you're a sinner or Jesus had to die for you. Or like, (laughs) you're a bad person. You got to obey these rules. But like, there's a period right there. There's nothing else. And then the second part is like, God, God's extravagant love shows up as your everyday life. You know, this laptop in front of me, you talking to me, the food I eat. And when we see, when we see the whole world that way, Uh, this does become heaven on earth. uh, Gratitude. Gratitude, right? And that's, you know, my spiritual mentor, Tiersi Engelhardt, um, who runs Cafe Gratitude down in LA and San Francisco, 
her question always is, what is the experience you're committed to having, right? And I decided the experience I'm committed to having is gratitude. Like, you know, I, I, I ruptured my Achilles uh, a month ago and I am like, literally, I cannot do anything. Like I cannot carry a glass of water or a plate of food. Like every, someone has to cook for me, clean for me, go shopping for me. And losing that sense of independence that we talk about in fire and like really sinking into, I'm actually dependent on other people. Um, that's the sense of gratitude. Like I can be grateful for a rupture of Achilles attendant because it is, again, making me fall back into grace. I am not independent. I am not this like individual hero that like, you know, reached fire by myself. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it, it definitely gives you a whole different perspective. And a lot of this happened for you during COVID, right? I mean, you were isolated. I don't know if if that with taking the five MEO DMT, if that was during the COVID pandemic, but but you've had a lot of time of being alone <laughs> to think about these things and to decide how you feel about that, right? Yeah, I mean, I know you you meditate. You know that there's that famous quote by uh, Blaise Pascal: "All the problems of humanity stem from the inability of a man to sit in a room by himself doing nothing." Yeah. I got uh, I got the experience of sitting in a room doing nothing for a year and a half. And when you can come through that, I mean, that's its own psychedelic experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I do also like this idea that psychedelics are just one of many mechanisms of getting you to this, this place. Mm. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you for being willing to talk about it. I think it's a fascinating conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you for interviewing me. Um, I didn't know what I was going to say, and I'm just grateful (laughs) that we met, and um, I hope we stay in touch. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.